Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today I'm joined by Dr. Arthur Agatston. Now, Dr. Agatston is a cardiologist at the Agatston Center for Preventive Medicine in Miami. He's an associate professor of medicine at the Miami Miller School of Medicine and a clinical professor of medicine at the Florida International University College of Medicine. Now, if you've had a coronary calcium score, you've probably also heard his name because the score you get is called the Agatston score. He's the, he's the creator of that score. Now, as you'll hear, he had colleagues. It wasn't all him. It was a group effort, but he was sort of the, the primary motivator and the, and the lead author of, of the first paper, and so it became known as the Agatston score. He also is the author of the South Beach Diet, and he's a... He's a um, a big proponent of looking at insulin resistance as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So he's really got a number of, of different things he's kind of known for in the cardiology and now the preventive and nutrition and lifestyle world. And this discussion really is, a, a, I think, a wonderful journey through sort of the topics of coronary calcium scores and things you may hear about coronary calcium scores here that you don't hear other places about some of the details and nuances that you really should know that will help you interpret your score better um, to understand it better and know how to follow it better. Some really important points here. Then also talking about the role of insulin resistance and how to test for it and how to treat for it, different interventions, um, what it means for you, what it means for your clinician, and how do we get the word out to more clinicians and more people about the importance of this. So sort of the intersection of imaging and then uh, laboratory testing and then lifestyle interventions for this whole big umbrella of cardiovascular risk. Now, a couple of topics come up that I just want, or in, in words and phrases, I want to clarify. So he talks about atherogenic and thrombogenic. So atherogenic is the development of cardiovascular plaque. Thrombogenic is the development of a blood clot, like an obstructive thrombus or obstructive blood clot. So that's the differentiation between those. We talk about coronary arteries, proximal and distal. Proximal is sort of the beginning segment, which is the bigger segment of the artery. Then as it courses down the heart, um, it becomes smaller and it's termed the distal artery. Okay, so proximal is the beginning and distal is the further down part. And then he talks about the pancreas and beta cells. Beta cells are the cells in the pancreas that are responsible for producing the insulin and secreting the insulin. Um, so that's that's the, uh, the terminology I wanted to make sure we have clear. So now without further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Arthur Agatson. Dr. Arthur Agatston, thank you so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. It's a real pleasure to be with you, Brett. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And I have yours. So it's, you know, I find it so interesting. It's, it's common to have people on the show who are really well known for something. But you seems like you're really well known for probably three different things. And, and I'm curious how you process in your brain. Because one, there's the the Agatston score for the coronary calcium score, which is, you know, now becoming one of the most used tests in preventive cardiology. And everybody gets this Agatston score with your name on it that you're very well known for. But then maybe among sort of the, the general population, you're probably best known as the author of the South Beach Diet books. And now you're really being known as, as a promoter of insulin resistance, you know, testing for insulin resistance, making it a cardiovascular risk marker. So I'm curious for you, what, what do you think you're best known for? What do you want to be best known for among all those three things? Well, in my practice still, I'm trying to, you know, our latest focus. It was always prevention, preventive cardiology. And now I, it, it's really kind of healthy aging uh, that is our focus. And that brings everything we've done before, uh, you know, diet, exercise, the imaging, uh, lipidology, diabetology, and it's integrating. And what we do in our office, we have great internists who work with us, is we really try to integrate all these aspects of healthy aging. And just in recent years, we've learned a lot more. That's been very exciting. So I love coming in every day. And that's great. Yeah, that's great. So I, I want to take a step back and talk about the coronary calcium score. And I've heard you on other interviews and you say, you know, you came up with the score over lunch on the back of a napkin one day and it, and it, you know, you made it sound sort of off the cuff, but I'm sure there was a lot of study and research and details that went into it. Did did you ever think, you know, back then in the in the 90s that that calcium scoring was going to become the tool that it is today in preventive cardiology and the Agatston score would be as widely used as it is today? Well, uh, no. And the first time it was mentioned, it was at a meeting um, 
because somebody uh, came up, I think Balarazi, with a with a volume score. So we distinguished the volume from our original score. So I was the first author on the first paper and called it the Agatston score. So I I tried to um, crawl under the chair. I didn't. That was the, the the first time. So that was kind of shocking. But it um, it's interesting the way it started. First, I was interested in cardiac prevention, and my first hero was Bill Castelli, who was the second director of Framingham, and he emphasized that at Framingham, the average cholesterol of people who did and did not have heart attacks was really the same, that cholesterol, as we know now, is not a very good indicator in individuals uh, for heart disease, and he he did um, emphasize a low-fat diet, which in my, me personally, my patients and colleagues, we just didn't seem, didn't seem to work. So uh, we couldn't do much about cholesterol. Then once uh, the statins came in the mid to late 80s, now we could really knock the socks out of cholesterol. And so, but the, the question was who to use it in. If we just did people with yeah. very high cholesterol, we were missing most of the people who had heart attacks. And if we were going to put it on everybody, that's putting it in the drinking water, um, which some people have recommended. And around, it was around that time that um, I knew a lot about coronary calcium because the then chief of cardiology at Sinai in Miami Beach had been trained in the 40s and was doing fluoroscopy regularly on patients to pick up um, coronary calcium for risk stratification, mainly to choose people who needed cath. So just to interrupt real quick, for those who don't know, fluoroscopy is basically like a, a lifetime moving x-ray. So you can see little spots of calcium, not as good as a coronary calcium score, but sort of like a, a very crude way of seeing calcium on x-ray. So sorry, I yeah. just want to explain that. So please continue. Sure. And, and because of that, I knew a lot about the coronary calcium literature. And I knew there were already pathology studies showing that the amount of calcium reflected uh, the total plaque burden. And we also knew that in general, I, I knew from Dr. Bill Roberts, that you didn't have a heart attack with your first plaque. It wasn't until you really had a very high plaque burden. Uh, in fact, interesting I uh, was at a hard house meeting with Bill Roberts and he was he used to cut the coronaries every five millimeters and showed that before you had a heart attack you had diffuse disease um, which he said was obstructive in fact I always remember he said when it came to his bypass uh, he didn't care what the angiogram showed he wanted all his vessels uh, bypassed and he was diffuse. <laughs> What he was missing, he was right about how diffuse the atherosclerosis was, um, but he didn't understand remodeling. And we learned that from Dr. Glackoff uh, late in the 80s. And that explained why on angiography, we might see one vessel disease where at pathology, there was diffuse. But we knew that it, it wasn't until a large plaque burden that you had an event and um, then when I was exposed to the, the uh, it was the Imitron, which was the first ability for a CT to acquire an image in a subsecond, in a fraction of a second. So you could freeze the motion of the heart and see coronary calcium. So then with the dilemma of choosing who to give statins to, we didn't have a diet that we had any confidence in. Um, I said, well, uh, let's try to quantify the amount of coronary calcium. Um, and uh, David King from Imitron was an engineer, but was very helpful. Um, and he was, he was visiting. In fact, we had the Imitron. It wasn't really being used. Uh, he was saying, it, you know, could looking for coronary calcium um, be an application? And uh, I thought, boy, yeah, we'll know who to use statins with, and I called Warren Janowitz, who is a nuclear medicine radiologist, also internist engineer, a lot, of, a lot of talents, and they came up with a protocol, and we grabbed some doctors out of the hallway and threw them on the scanner, and we were amazed at 
the resolution of the coronary calcium. And so we did our first paper, just patients who we known obstructive disease versus those without known coronary disease. And unlike cholesterol, there was really a big separation. There was naturally an overlap. And so um, we wrote the first paper. And honestly, I thought there was enough, we knew enough. Uh, you know, we knew this reflected how much arteriosclerosis there was. And we thought that had a lot to do with coronary disease. So people might want to be interested, in, uh, have an interest in that. One thing was the Imitron um, was very good at stopping the motion of the heart. And it was used for kids who moved around a lot. You could raise the motion, but otherwise for brain, bone, things that weren't moving, it didn't have the same resolution as the conventional scanner. So it wasn't until around 2000 with the multi-slice scanners where the resolution and the speed got better that it really became available. And that's, that's when it took off. Yeah, yeah. So, so many interesting parts in there about the, the evolution of this. And, and just so people understand, when you image the brain, the brain's not moving. When you image the knee, the knee's not, not moving, but the heart's continually moving back and forth with every beat. So you had to freeze frame it in such, in such a, high, uh, a high temporal resolution scan. And so that was a big part of the evolution. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense. But the other important part you made is the part about the diffuse nature of the disease. And this is something that I think really cardiologists need to learn as much as anybody else. You can go in and put a stent in one stenosis, one narrowing, but there is vascular disease everywhere. Um, and, and so it doesn't just require a local treatment. It requires a diffuse treatment. So you've mentioned statins a number of times and in the nineties and early 2000s, statins were all the rage and, and they sort of still are in many circles of cardiology, of course. Um, but I find it interesting, the use of coronary calcium scores, either to give statins or not to give statins, to, to say someone's high risk or low risk. Now, m my recollection of it is, is really in the beginning, calcium scores were used to say you are high risk and you need much more aggressive treatment. Um, and it was not used as much to say you're low risk and maybe don't need treatment. But I think that's sort of where the tide is now going, this, this power of zero, that a zero calcium score is, is very reassuring on a number of fronts, at least for the next five years, maybe the next 10 years, depending on the situation. So have you noticed sort of the same progression that now the use of calcium scores are so powerful with, with a measure of zero that we can, we can lower the risk of somebody who might otherwise be considered higher risk? Yes. And of course, um, that, that was really introduced and popularized by uh, Dr. Kuram Nasser, who's my you know, colleague and, and friend. And so we don't, we have patients with cholesterols well over 300. They may be, you know, FH patients may not be. Um, if, they have, if they have a score of zero, um, I, I do not treat them with statins. Uh, we follow them, but we followed some for 20 years and they don't develop it. Um, the, the other area is they tend to have large LDL particles rather than small LDL particles. They don't have the atherogenic lipid uh, profile. Um, but for the choice of, uh, of who do you treat with high cholesterols, and that, of course, comes up in the low-carb world and the, the work of Dave, Dave Feldman now. Um, but where we see um, a zero score, uh, it's, it's up to a 15-year uh, warranty of not having a heart attack. It's a little bit different if you're diabetic or insulin resistant. Right. Um, and we, we, watch, uh, we watch them more closely. And the other thing is for clinical trials, because where, where the power of a study and the cost is so, uh, it's so expensive and difficult and eliminating patients with scores of zero or low scores that are not going to have events in any case means that uh, with, uh, with new medications, uh, you, can tr you can focus the, the group that you is really at risk. No, that's an interesting point. Use it as a screening tool to enroll people in trials that you're enrolling a higher risk group. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and so the other part about 
about using calcium scores to risk stratify people though is what's also interesting is like you said the whether or not you have diabetes or not it means something different if your score is zero and and so you mentioned that LDL and cholesterol doesn't correlate well with those who have heart attacks and those who don't, but the calcium score does. But now here's one thing about calcium score is also the temporal nature of a calcium score. So if you've had high LDL your entire life and you're 65 years old and your calcium score is zero, that's a very different scenario than someone who's had high LDL for the past two years and their calcium score is zero. So tell us how you're, how you sort of interpret those a little bit differently in terms of the warranty or the follow-up or the reassurance of that zero calcium score. Yeah, as, as far as <laughs> risk factors, the calcium score, it tells us the plaque burden at a particular time. But it also tells us the duration of risk factor exposure. So if you've had, um, if you have true familial hypercholesterolemia, high LP little a, a number of genetic risk factors, the exposure has been in a sense from birth, um, early childhood. If, if it's a lifestyle where you gain weight when you, uh, you, you sold your company, you retired or something like that, when risk factors come late, um, and that's when you develop small particles atherogenesis, um, the, those, those will be young plaques. They haven't been around a long time, and they start as, uh, as, as very low density and small. From the time of plaque rupture, it's six months to about two years before you can, you'll see the first bit of calcium. But what's misunderstood in the beginning, um, people would see a large calcification, a high LAD, left vein. They said, uh-oh, they're in trouble. Let's go after it. First of all, the calcified plaques are inert. Um, they don't cause an event. They're markers of atherosclerotic burden. But they're not the dangerous lesions. And atherosclerosis starts proximally and proceeds distally. So the largest plaques are proximal high LAD because that's where they first formed. That there was the greatest turbulent flow proximally, but the flow was strong and the and they don't cause events. It's not till you have a lumpy, bumpy vessel, um, really down and often multi-vessel, that you're really uh, that you're really at risk. So by the, the really large individual plaques, and sometimes they fuse with, uh, with adjacent ones, that tells you uh, not that you're more obstructive, it, it shows how long you've been exposed to risk factors. And again, uh, you have some lifestyle risk factors, not always, they can start early, but they come later, and so, um, and so some diabetics will see a lot of small plaques, but not a real high score, but they're, they're moving rapidly. Yeah, so and, many good points to, to, to review in there. And I think one that really is, is sort of like an intellectual disconnect, though, is that if you see a high burden of calcium, that, like you said, that's a marker of overall disease, but it's not so much that calcium that's the problem. And this opens up a lot of areas of discussion. And I remember studies um, from, you know, decade a decade ago or so where they looked at characteristics of plaques that were more likely to cause heart attacks. And exactly what you're saying, the densely calcified ones were the least likely to cause heart attacks. And it was more the mixed soft plaque, a little bit of calcium, or the really soft plaque, those that were more likely to cause heart attacks. So when we see something that a high calcium score, one of the first questions people always ask is, well, how can I reverse this? How can I lower my calcium score? And I definitely have my bias, how I answer that question, but I want to hear your answer well, as well. How I, do you I, approach I've that? I've been looking at calcium for a long time. Calcified plaque does not reverse. Um, I would say period. Um, if, it, if it does, if it disappears, um, it's regression to the mean. You're 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 just hitting uh, the calcium from you know from a different angle. That's that's healed plaque. It doesn't reverse. And the way we follow patients, and the earlier you see plaque, 
Um, when you see people with scores of less than 100, even less than 200, you can usually count the plaques. And if you follow them over 20, 30 years, which I've had the opportunity to do, the old plaques, um, in where there was uh, a plaque rupture or degeneration of plaque and scarring, that area of scar continues to calcify. So your score goes up, but you stop seeing new plaques if you're treating aggressively um, uh, popping up down the vessel. So we see in people who've treated for many years, we've treated aggressively, their scores will go up. Um, again, the old plaques get bigger and denser, but we don't see those very low density new plaques popping up. And when you see people with two or three plaques, um, young people in their 30s, now they're high risk because even though they don't have a high score, they've developed it early. If somebody's um, you know, 80, 50 years uh, later and have the same score, well, it's taken 50 more you know, years. Uh, and, and so the, the, the young person with any plaque um, is at high risk, but it's, I'll negotiate with them if they, they don't want to take a statin and we want to be aggressive with lifestyle, even if they have some genetic causes. Um, and I say, as long as you're not popping up new plaques, um, we'll treat you medically. And we have any number of those patients um, and who, who don't progress. And if they yeah. do progress, then I say, we'll renegotiating. If they're older, with high scores, then it's full court press. And that's, it's all risk benefit ratio. And I'll say, we may be able to do it all with lifestyle, but I don't want to bet your life on it. Yeah. So one really important point, I want people to have a, a key takeaway moment from this interview right there. If you get a calcium score and you get your Agatston score and boom, and that's all you get, Really, that's just scratching the surface of the information that's available. And just like you said, number of plaques is really important. And not everybody reports that. In fact, most people, most institutions don't report number of plaques. But it's something that should be reported. And it's worth a phone call to your doctor and a phone call to the radiologist to see how many plaques you have or to have a doctor such as yourself or such as myself or somebody else who can actually see the scan and look at it. Because then when you compare a scan today to a scan a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, whether the score changes is one thing, but if the number of plaque changes, that's probably equally, if not more important, because like you're saying, a higher yes. score could just be more stability, but more plaques means more new plaques. And that's what you want to guard against. So that, I think that's one, I, I really, I'm really glad you brought that up because yeah, that no, is that, a key take home. That's uh, beautifully stated. And what we do in our practice, and I wish I, more and more cardiologists would, is we look side by side at the old and yes. the new, and we're just looking for new plaques. And fortunately now, because the cost has, has gone down so much and the radiation has also less than a millisievert, um, we will, some people we will repeat yearly, and that's because there are technical issues, there's motion, um, and but if you have five years of serial studies, you're going to know whether there are new plaques and whether they're progressing um, right. from one year to the next. And I, I always hate to admit this, but do not go by the score alone. Over many years, the score will, will or in a big population, it will reflect progression. But I have patients in a panic. Oh, my God, my score went up. So my Atkinson score, I said, forget the Atkinson score. Let's look at it <laughs> side by side. And that's, that's how we determine progression and, um, and whether to uh, be more aggressive with therapy. Yeah, I hope everybody can appreciate the the situation. The man who's the score is named after is talking about how not to follow the score and where the score is not necessarily the best the best marker, and that that's important. And so, and the other part of that, again, with the score and the number of lesions, is the density of the plaques, which you've which you've referred to a number of times. But I think it's worth talking a little bit more about because, again, not something that's commonly reported. You just get a total score, but if you know how eat how dense each plaque is, meaning 
understanding how concentrated the calcium is in one area, it can give you some insight as to the risk of that plaque. And there's actually some evidence that the density of the plaque is a better predictor of cardiovascular risk than the total score. So tell us a little bit about how you use density in your practice and how you would advise others to, to use density in the, in the scans that they get. Yeah, well, it's actually, I did this first great study on this with Dr. Michael Crickey, and I believe what he showed was, now it's given the same plaque burden. I mean, because if you're having your first calcification when you're 55, 60, that's a low score, and you're going to be low risk. And by the way, the reason that the high burden uh, causes risk, and this is been shown in, you know, in, in a lot of studies is because when you're developing a lumpy, bumpy vessel, um, when you have uh, not, uh, when you have turbulent flow, it's both atherogenic and thrombogenic. And there's sort of a feed forward mechanism. First, when there's, you, you don't see people, they may have a lot of plaque in their iliac and femoral arteries, but they're not grabbing their leg. Oh my God, I got the big one. That's because they may have a lot of atherosclerosis, but the flow is robust. And that's the way you are initially in the proximal coronary. And that's, when the, that's why these early plaques um, don't cause events. But as it's lumpy bumpy and you get, we call a feed forward mechanism, the turbulence is, um, is, uh, goes sort of down the vessel. Um, and that's why the, the atherosclerosis progresses um, more, you know, more distally. Um, but what Cricky showed was given the same type of plaque burden, if you have more low density plaques, you're at higher risk. And I, that, those are the plaques I call younger plaques. And so um, more younger plaques means it's an active uh, situation. I'll, you know, we'll get a patient, say who's been on a statin or has changed their diet, have been very aggressive. And you want to know Often, um, the treatment may have slowed progression, um, but not stopped it. And that's where looking at these young, um, low-density plaques can really tell us about uh, what the whole natural history is. Yeah. So, so again, another big take home is you don't just want your score. You want the number of plaques and you want the density of the plaques so that you can follow those over time because they tell you so much more. So that's great. Now also though, a caveat though, there's, there's some limits about above a score where some of these things really kind of break down. Like if someone has a score of 1500 or something, you know, okay, measuring density of the plaques and number of the plaques really becomes just untenable. You just cannot do there's literature out there saying above 100, it's sort of a score of 100, it breaks down. To me, that seems a little low. I think you can still get some utility above 100. I'm curious what you think in your mind, if there's sort of a cutoff score where a lot of these techniques and tips sort of break down. Well, I mean, what you're saying is exactly right. And once you have diffuse, really high scores, uh, there's, there's, you know, there's so many technical issues. Um, that I, I don't repeat the calcium score in those patients. Um, certainly below 100, and I mentioned, that's why it's so great when you pick up people early, it is, you can see each plaque, you can see it get a little bit bigger and denser every year or so, and you can see if new plaques are popping up. Um, I, you know, there's not one score. I mean, some people, if, if they have a lot of distal coronary, uh, where there's no plaque at all, you can still sort of keep an eye on that. Um, and but certainly when you're getting up uh, 300, 400, it gets it gets really problematic. Less than 100, it's usually easy to follow. And then there's kind of a gray area in between. Yeah. So, so one, one more thing I want to touch on about the calcium score, which again, you've, you've brought up is the radiation dose, because it's, you know, anytime we're talking about CT scans, people are concerned about the radiation dose. So you mentioned one millisievert and, you know, we, in medicine, we can use analogies like, you know, one cross country flight, you're exposed to like three millisieverts or one year of living on the earth is four millisievert exposure or like a mammograms around a millisievert. What, what do you, what do you like to use as your analogy to show people how, what the dose of radiation is and whether or not it's something to be concerned about? Well, I do use the flying across the country. Yeah. Um, I use people living at high altitude. 
um, as, as well as, uh, as as pilots and flight attendants. Okay. Um, there don't seem to be um, you know, issues issues there. And I'm not an expert on uh, radiation risk, but at the national CT uh, meetings, I would go to the radiation safety session every year until I was convinced it's such low risk that I could tell my patients that. And again, I mean, one screening study is, is, is just not risky at all. You know, years ago with older scanners, um, you know, and, and whole body scans, things were like 25 millisieverts. With new scanners and when you're gated and you're just going to the heart, it's it's very it's very little radiation, and when we're talking about the the risk of of heart attack, and the thing about the calcium score, it really is a it's a it's it's really a predictor of all cause mortality, and so as far as risk benefit, knowing the score and um, and then then even um, yearly, it's it's so little radiation, um, and I discuss it. You know, always with a, with a patient. Um, but if we're deciding whether to add medication um, and be more aggressive, I think uh, the benefit far outweighs the risk. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now the, the topic of statins have come up a few times as well. And so it's pretty clear in the literature that taking a statin increases your calcium score, which for a lot of people, again, is sort of a little bit of an intellectual disconnect. Well, wait a second. If, cal if statins are supposed to help cardiovascular events, but they raise calcium scores and calcium scores are supposed to be correlated with poor cardiac events, how can that happen? And again, I think it comes down to the density and stabilizing plaque. So how do you handle follow-up scores on people who are taking statins? Well, the, the, um, the, the statins within the first year um, that you've ruptured or degenerated a plaque, um, it, I think it accelerates healing and including that initial calcification. But when you're following people for longer term, um, then people who are developing new plaques, their calcium score, um, you know, goes up rapidly and it overcomes any effect, uh, effect of statins. So if, if statins are, are indicated, it's, a, it's, it's separate. And that's again, you know, don't look at the total score because um, with statin therapy, if it's being used appropriately, you will have less progression, or what I call the cholesterol pimple that ruptures, degenerates, that, that turns once it's scarred. That's um, that's where you get uh, the the calcification, and yeah. so once it's calcified, it's yeah, it is it's safe. You don't have to worry about that plaque, as far as I'm concerned. And you know that's what we know. If the uh, almost all obstructive plaques are calcified, unless you're in an acute situation, and you know now the courage trial, the ischemia trial, we know that if you take people with chronic stable angina, um, even, uh, even if they have positive, you know, positive stress tests, that um, opening vessels does not prevent uh, prolonged life or prevent future events. And that's because what you're opening is, is a calcified plaque that's inert. Um, if you are preventing progression of stenosis in those people, we would have, we would have seen um, uh, an, an effect of, of yeah. the, in the COURAGE trial and right. the ischemia trial and other trials. Right. And I think to go back to the statin question, because it's so controversial um, in, many, in many circles, it, it, sort of what you said is really important. And, and at no point did we talk about lowering LDL, but we talked about statin's effect on the plaque, stabilization of the plaque. So it does seem to have this separate effect. Now, in the beginning of the discussion, though, when you were talking about in the 90s, you know, it was to see who do you treat a stat, who do you give a statin to and who don't you, that the calcium score can be used for that. Now, the evaluation of risk and the treatment has really evolved far past LDL and far past statins. So if you see a new patient, high calcium score, what goes through your brain in terms of the checklist of what do I need to evaluate to see why this person has high calcium and what we can do to prevent further progression? Because my guess is it's got a lot more to do than just LDL or statins. 
Yes, ab absolutely. And what we do is I, I, I have a chart. It sort of separates uh, lifestyle causes, which all has to do uh, with insulin resistance, uh, you know, beta cell dysfunction. And besides um, the calcium score, the most important test we do today is the craft test. That's like the glucose tolerance test. But instead of measuring glucose, which is a very late um, indicator of risk, including um, you know, hemoglobin A1C, um, years um, before that's abnormal, um, you will have high insulin levels and evidence of beta cell dysfunction. And this is, we could talk more about how we identify those patients, but those are lifestyle issues and it includes the majority of Americans. Hmm. Any overweight teenager um, will have high insulin, uh, insulin after a glucose tolerance test, a 75 gram drink of, of glucose. They will also have beta cell dysfunction. Uh, Dr. Ralph DeFranzo showed this um, with euglycemic clamps, the sophisticated studies where you need intravenous strips of insulin and glucose. Uh, we find that with the Kraft test, we can see both insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction. So we have um, the kids of parents with diabetes who are, who are thin in their early 20s who already have insulin resistance. They have very high insulin levels and they already have beta cell dysfunction. The beta cell dysfunction, you can tell if you look at a diabetic um, with clear severe beta cell dysfunction, the, the initial uh, 30 minute after you drink your glucose drink, um, the insulin is very low. It goes up gradually and it peaks at about two hours or actually after two hours. Our test just goes up to two hours. We've occasionally done it, uh, done it longer. And that's the, um, the beta cells, which we used to think were burnt out. They're not, they're just asleep. And in general, it is reversible. Um, but Dr. DeFonso pointed out with his more sophisticated tests, which I'm not convinced are better, but more sophisticated, um, that this starts very early in the natural history. Um, and in fact, uh, at Yale, Dr. Schulman and, and Peterson have shown also in thin Yale undergraduates where there's a family history of uh, diabetes or if there's any evidence of, of insulin resistance, their glucose and their glucose tolerance test will be normal, but they will already have high insulin levels. So if you're headed, we often say, with calcium scores, if you're headed for a heart attack in your 60s or 70s, you will have plaque in your 30s and 40s. Well, yeah. if you're headed for diabetes in your 60s or 70s, you will have an abnormal craft test in your 20s. So there are a lot of people walking around, thin or little bellies that you don't recognize that are at risk. And we don't call them abnormal until they hit hemoglobin A1C of 5.7. That's very late in the game. By the time they hit that, um, they may have a lot of coronary calcium. They may have had a heart attack, um, other chronic disease. And so it depends on the lifestyle. And then the other half of what we evaluate, um, which are the genetic causes. And I, I love uh, Dr. Um, uh, Jason Fung's analogy that the, uh, the insulin resistance beta cell dysfunction is the soil which most Americans now have some of that soil. And when you add the seeds, the high uh, LP little a, um, we, we look at congenital small particles, um, HDL dysfunction, familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, when you add the seeds to the soil, that's where we see very high calcium scores um, early on. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, again, a lot in there. So a, a lot of great discussion about the craft test. And so a quick analogy uh, or a quick story from me, I ordered a craft test on a patient of mine at his local lab, right? He didn't want to go to a big national lab. So I ordered it at like a small local lab and they turned him away. They basically, despite my typing out like a whole page of instructions, they didn't know what it was. They were uncomfortable doing it. They turned him away. So, I, and I just think that's a good example that 
that a lot of labs and a lot of doctors are just very unfamiliar with the craft test. And it's not something people are going to get on a regular basis. But as you just described, the importance of it and the implications of it are, are very important for catching things early. And that's something that we're not set up for in our whole medical society and our medical practice institutions is just we're not great at detecting things early. So um, one, I'm curious the specifics. Do you do, you know, time zero, 30, 60, 90, and 120 minutes? Are those your draws? And what advice do you give to people who want a craft test but are having a hard time getting it from their physicians? Well, you know, we do do it in our office. And um, with labs, we try to describe because they do know what a glucose tolerance is. It's not expensive. It's a pain in the neck because we do fasting 30, 60, 90, 120. I think, um, first of all, I think finger sticks are coming um, for for insulin. Um, we, we're not using that. We heard we're, we want to evaluate that. I think it will be available in the next year. Um, so, so just logistically, that will make it easier. Um, and, uh, and, and we do describe to the lab, it's a glucose tolerance test, which they all have in their system. And please just draw um, the, the insulin. We do it in our office. We've been doing it for four years and patients were re resistant at first because it's over two hours. And now um, we really don't take no for an answer because <laughs> it gives us so much information. And I think hopefully the labs, we're trying to talk with major labs more and more of how important this test will, will be. And so mm -hmm. it's logistically a pain, but it's not expensive. And it's really, it is simple to do. And uh, the examples we have, um, you know, one other area with calcium scores that I just became aware of recently was a lot of patients who are quite thin with high calcium scores and their A1Cs weren't 5.7. Um, and and I, they were so thin, I almost didn't take uh, the prediabetes or insulin resistance that seriously. They're often mm -hmm. athletic. And then um, I saw a presentation with Dr. Schulman talking about lipodystrophy. And lipodystrophy is where you don't make fat. You don't make subcutaneous fat at all. And those patients um, develop diabetes as teenagers. And the reason they do is if they can't store fat under the skin, they store it ectopically in the liver, in the pancreas, in the muscle. That causes insulin resistance and, and diabetes. And then I realized what we call TOFIs, these patients who are thin on the outside, um, they, when we do CTs, we have them go down a little further. We can see the visceral fat. Um, we, we also do a, um, a, 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 we call it the fit, the fit 3D. Um, it's an imitar. It tells us about, um, about lean body mass versus fat mm -hmm. mass. And so what, um, what we've, what I've realized is a lot of these tofis sit on the outside, fat on the inside have very high scores. And this was an epiphany kind of recently. They're, I think they're equivalent um, to almost lipodystrophy. They have a very low um, personal fat threshold, which I know you've talked about in some of your podcasts. And so they don't store under the skin. Um, and they, they, so they have long risk factor exposure. They develop the novo lipogenesis in their liver, small LDL particles, and they develop risk early. So even though they look thin, they're often at very high risk. And that's the reason why Asians now, if you look at Mumbai or Beijing, they have the same or a higher um, yeah. diabetes, diabetes than we have in the West. They have a lot of vascular disease but not nearly as much obesity. And that's because they have this very low um, fat threshold. They don't store under their skin. And the flip side is you can see people up to 300, 400 pounds in exception, and they go for a gastric bypass and the gastric surgeon is expecting to see a super fatty liver, 
which they usually see, but every once in a while, they see a pristine liver because all the fat is under the skin. It's the mm -hmm. roly-poly type. And so the, the thing is, there are a lot of TOFIs. And if there's a family history of coronary disease, of diabetes, you have to take them uh, very seriously. And that's when we started doing the craft test and realized some of them had A1Cs, 5.3, 5.4, 5.5, but they had very abnormal craft tests. Yeah. So good points. If, you, if you're just using the weight on the scale, you're missing a whole subset of population at risk. If you're just using blood sugar and hemoglobin A1C, you're missing a huge population at risk. And, and so such good take-homes for people to think about if that could apply to them and to bring this up with their clinician for sure. So, so now once you identify these risks, we talked about coronary calcium score to identify uh, plaque burden and risk of vascular disease. We talked about the craft test to identify insulin resistance and body composition imaging to identify those at risk. What are your main pillars of treatment once you see this? And, and how has your thought about those treatments evolved over time? Well, if um, first of my faith in low carb, we call it sort of keto friendly. It could be low carb, it could be keto, it could be intermittent fasting, depending on the patient and the situation. Um, the earlier we identify patients with risk, and again, could be kids in their 30s, their A1Cs, um, we have, they, their A1Cs can be less than five, but they have very abnormal craft tests. They don't have enough beta cell. Well, they have young pancreases. They're still making a lot of insulin. They actually already have beta cell dysfunction, but their A1Cs are not high. So there, um, and sometimes older patients who put on weight recently, but don't have a lot of plaque, um, then our primary approach is lifestyle. And the one thing we learned besides the, the diet, which I know you and your listeners don't know so much about, um, the, is, is fitness. And that we always had uh, the debate between aerobic exercise and, and resistance training. And we think the data now, and I learned this from uh, your Dr. Ben Bocciccio and several others, is um, lean body mass in increasing um, your, your muscle and bone density um, with proper resistance training. That doesn't have to be a long, you know, it doesn't have to be daily. It could be once or twice a week, literally. And we have so many examples where when people put on a real fast twitch to be um, the, the, the big muscle, the strength, that they improve their craft test, they improve their insulin sensitivity dramatically. And particularly with aging, they all say with age, we're replacing our muscle with fat. And that's like a normal part of aging. Well, it's not a normal part of aging. What it is, is when we age, when we break bones, we have surgeries, we're put at bed rest, or we're just not being active, we're atrophying our, our muscle. And when we're, we're atrophying, um, then you have less areas to store glycogen. And so when you're having glucose, it gets diverted um, to the liver, to muscle, um, you get de novo lipogenesis, um, you, you get more fat. And the fat infiltrates the muscle and causes um, insulin resistance and diabetes. And the thing is, with age, it's safe in the proper hands and proper advice, even people in, in nursing homes, to do, um, to do resistance training. And so we have so many examples um, that this along with the diet makes a big difference. And so that's been a big addition to our lifestyle. And just doing a lot of aerobic exercise every day does not do it. In fact, of course, the best example is we all love Tim Noakes. And of course, he um, was a marathoner, physician, who wrote the book on carb loading until <laughs> um, he developed diabetes and went on a low carb diet, reversed his diabetes.
But um, the thing about marathoners is they have slow twitch type one fibers. Um, you see how thin they are. They don't store a lot of glycogen. And if you're carb loading or just having a bad diet, you fill up the glycogen stores and then more glucose gets diverted um, to fat. And when uh, Tim Noakes stopped all the carbs, his diabetes reversed. And marathoners, we noticed years ago, tended to have a lot of coronary calcium. I always remember I had um, three brothers. One who was a physician was a marathoner. Um, bad family history of coronary disease. All three brothers had coronary calcium, but the marathoner had the most. And now some recent studies from Rob Schwartz that in fact, marathoners have more coronary calcium um, than uh, sedentary controls. And I think that's the carb loading without a lot of places to store glycogen. In sprinters who are ripped, um, they're, they're training anaerobically and they need a lot of glycogen stores in their slow twitch, I'm sorry, their fast twitch fibers. And when um, they're called the fight or flight um, muscle fibers. So uh, when they were, you know, um, in, uh, in the wild and had a big kill and all of a sudden another tribe decides they may want to eat some of that kill, they had to decide to fight or get out of there. They needed big, strong muscles. And it turns out those big, strong, fast twitch muscles um, contain a lot of glycogen. It turns very quickly to glucose metabolized to pyruvate, lactic acid. They get tired, but by then they've presumably won the fight or they're, they're out of there. Um, and so the type of anaerobic um, exercise, uh, sprint interval training, as well as resistance training, um, you turn that glycogen into glucose, you deplete it, and those, and we know after, uh, in, in studies, after just some short, heavy exercise, you improve your insulin sensitivity uh, very rapidly. And yeah. so that's been a new big emphasis of the, the, the lifestyle side of our practice. Yeah. So, so interesting to, to look at the evolution of exercise and its role in sort of health. And, you know, back in the eighties, it was all about, you know, marathons, getting your time in and, you know, zone two, steady state training, aerobic training, whatever you want to call it. And then it really has evolved. But for a while there, it took a dip that you don't need to exercise to lose weight. Exercise is sort of worthless. All you have to do is focus on your diet. But that totally disassociated exercise from its non-weight loss benefits, which are exactly like you're saying, not just strength and lack of frailty and being able to recover from, from problems as you get older, but also to be able to utilize glucose better and help with insulin sensitivity, this whole sort of underpinning, which is, you know, I think part of the problem of ignoring insulin resistance as a problem in itself, which, you know, medical society has done because... I don't know, you could say because there aren't good drugs for it, right? It's not, uh, it's not as profitable. It's a lifestyle treatment and, and the role that exercise has and specifically resistance training. So I think that really is interesting to see that evolution, which I, you know, I'm sure you've seen as and well. By the one, one point is we see patients come in when we start them on that. And actually some, a couple of interesting anecdotes. Um, during COVID, um, I had a few patients who were jujitsu, they grappled. And we, they couldn't grapple anymore. And two of them started a lot more resistance training. And they both put on lean body mass and they lost fat mass. So often they put on weight, but the weight was muscle and bone and they actually lost, uh, lost fat. And so uh, that's become sort of a big part of what we're, we're counseling these days. Well, I think we've gone through a really interesting journey, starting with the calcium score, detection of disease, but what it means, a lot of the important details and nuances of the score, and then what to do about the score, whether their testing can can identify people at risk, um, and then what we can do about it, specifically, like you're mentioning, uh, the benefits of low-carb nutrition and specific exercise, resistance training. 
now comes the question of, you know, you and your practice, my my practice, we can affect people one-on-one. We can really improve the lives and the health of people one-on-one and educate them. But then the next question is, how do we get this out to the world, to the world of clinicians as they are now and future clinicians? And obviously podcasts like this are are one way of doing it, but you've, you've hinted uh, offline about some exciting developments you have to help educate the, the future of physicians. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, the feeling in the... You know, my evolution, um, you know, first South Beach Diet book, um, we didn't really say anything about exercise. And people said, don't you think it's important? I said, yeah, it's important, but I didn't have anything to add. And so we just keep learning um, more and more all the time. And my view of prevention is there are all these separate silos. And the great lipidologist, I've learned so much from Ron Krauss, and Robert Superco, um, and we use a size, LDL size distribution um, every day in our practice. Um, I learned a lot of diabetology um, in listening to, to Ralph DeFonso and realizing how important the craft test is that beta cell dysfunction, insulin resistance starts so early in the natural history of, of diabetes. Um, the imaging, you have to understand imaging and the role it can play. Um, obviously, nu- nutrition, which again you talk so much about, and the fitness is is relatively new. Um, there's relationships um, to other chronic disease. I think um, the cancer part, breast cancer, GI cancers, are um, from high, chronically high insulin levels. Hunger is chronically high insulin levels, um, Alzheimer's type, you know, type three diabetes, neurodegenerative disease, um, auto, autoimmune disease. Um, so, so much of our, of our uh, chronic disease and everybody has their own silos. And so we've, we've started um, a, a new prevention fellowship at the DeBakey Center in Methodist, um, uh, with with Dr. Kurum Nasser, and the idea is to bring um, the, all these silos of prevention um, together. So it's not just lipidology; it's you know nutrition, fitness, diabetology, the craft test, imaging, um, and uh, my friend Richard Isaacson. He years ago, who's he's a Alzheimer's prevention person, who uh, just moved from New York to South Florida. He always said. What's good for your brain is good for your heart and vice versa. And we both believe that very strongly. And so um, the idea of the project in Methodist, um, and we're joined also by Dr. Ron Krauss, um, our yeah. super lipid guru, um, and uh, is, is to really try to bring together uh, the different silos of prevention and that's where I openly would, would love you to take part because um, from your podcast, you do so much to spread the word. And so it's educate both um, fellows who finish their fellowship, but we hope um, expanding the edu- education um, to other health providers as well. Yeah, that's that's so wonderful to hear. I mean, because it's really what we need. I, 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 have, I really want to educate the general public. So they can understand for themselves, but then it's sort of up to them to educate the clinicians, which is a tough job for, you know, an average person to educate a physician because a lot of physicians, you know, are are a little hesitant to hear that. Um, So to to be able to go directly to the clinician, I think is also so important, starting with the young physicians, the physicians of tomorrow, but also having the opportunity to educate uh, the older physicians, the physicians who've been in practice for a long time, so important to really move this whole concept forward because it is about prevention. It's about seeing the bigger picture. And since it's not sponsored by drug companies, it's not, you know, got millions and hundreds of millions of dollars behind it from drug companies. It's it's amazing how slow it is and how yes. much more difficult it is to to sort of get an in and start it. So I'm so glad to hear you're doing this and hopefully it will just continue to grow and scale from there. So so thank you for all that work. That's wonderful. Um, now, I think this has been a wonderful discussion. If people want to know more about you and about the what you offer um, in your treatment programs, where would you direct them to go? 
Um, well, we our our website is the Atkinson uh, Center um, dot dot com. Um, is as far as what we offer, you know, in the practice. And our our the most recent book is the Keto Friendly South Beach Diet that talks about quite a you know quite a bit of this. Um, so that's a disclosure and a bias, but it's uh it it does describe a lot of what we're a lot of what we're talking about. Very good. Well thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today on the Diet Doctor Podcast. Thank you so much, Brett.